questions that are taken directly from Scripture, questions that Jesus asked, questions that others asked him, questions that were asked in the Old Testament, for example. We used one this morning from the book of Job. And uh, that was Job asking the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? And on Sunday night, we've been asking or answering rather questions or attempting to uh, that have been asked by men and women who are uh, not just in this audience, but all over the, uh, the, the different places, questions that a lot of us sometimes have. And so we come to one tonight that there is much interest in. And that's simply this, why should I be a member of the church of Christ? If you've ever talked to someone about their salvation and you've talked to them from the standpoint that you are a member of the body of Christ, they may ask you that question, why should I be a member of the church of Christ? You may be asking yourself the question, why should I be a member of the church of Christ? Young people, when they grow up and begin to be teenagers and and begin to think of, about things that are religious in nature. Even though they've been a part of the Lord's church, they've been brought by their parents, they, they sometimes want to know, why should I be a member of the church of Christ? What makes it different? Well, as, as we begin to answer that question, I want us to understand tonight there are some things about which we can be absolutely certain. In spite of what our world teaches today, they're... they're uh, about uncertainty, they, you know, basically people sometimes say that the only thing you can be certain about is there's nothing certain. And so, but I want us to understand tonight, there's one thing that we can be absolutely certain about. And, and what is that? Well, one thing that Christ did not authorize, nor is he pleased with, is a multiplicity of churches, a, a bunch of different churches. Now, we talked about that to some degree last week. Let me just establish that fact by a few verses tonight. Matthew chapter 16 at verse 18. Jesus, in talking to Peter, made the statement that you are uh, Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He didn't say he would build his churches. He used the singular term, I will build my church. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 4, Paul wrote by inspiration and said, There is one body. Well, Paul, what is it you're talking about? He had already identified the body back in chapter number 1, verses 22 and 23, when he talked about how the body is the church in that passage. And so, again, we have the singularity of the church. In the book of John, chapter 10, at verse number 16, Jesus while here on this earth, he said, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking to the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders in particular. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He said, I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one flock, and one shepherd. Of course, we understand who the shepherd is. Jesus himself is the shepherd, the good shepherd. And the good shepherd said, I've got one flock. And so, again, we see establishing from that standpoint. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 at verse number, or chapter 1 rather, at verse number 10. Paul wrote and said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And then in the book of John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. On the night before our Lord was baptized, he went out into the garden and he prayed. And it's, it, it's during this prayer that he prayed and so much that he sweated blood. 
But in that prayer, he said, I do not ask for these only, talking about the apostles who were there with him. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, they, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, Jesus prayed for the oneness of his disciples, of his followers, that we all were to be one. You know what we've done by fractioning the church into denominationalism, to many denominations, we've given the devil his biggest club against which to, to frail on Christianity, to beat us over the head and, and to keep people from, from being saved. And that's one of the things that Jesus prayed about in John chapter 17. He prayed that they would be one so that the world, that we would be one so that the world may be able to believe. So that people would not be asking questions, well, why are there so many churches? And why can't I be a part of this one and not of that one? Why can't we be one? You know, we have to honestly face some facts, even in the Lord's church tonight. There are some things that you and I have to, have to look at. And one of those things is that we are indeed a part of divided, and we're going to use a, a, this term, we are a part of divided Christendom. In other words, Christians, however you define that term, we are a part of divided Christendom. And, and so as we think about that, even we who are a part of the church of Christ, are divided from the rest of the world, are we not? We are separated from, divided from the rest of the world. And you know what? That comes at great cost, doesn't it? Just on, a, on an actual financial basis, doesn't it come at a, at a great cost? If, if every congregation of every denomination could band together in communities and in, in places... How many church buildings, quote-unquote, could be closed up? And how many light bills and how many heating bills or cooling bills and all of those things, how much money could we save in regard to that? But we are a part of divided Christendom. And it comes at a cost not just in millions each year and money, but it comes at a cost, as we've already stated, in regard to people uh, turning away from Christianity and turning away from Christ because of the division. You know, there are probably folks who don't see much difference in the various religious organizations of the world. They look and they see only the, the broad things. They say, well, all of us believe in Christ, that, that He is God's Son. And, and we need to remember that even we who are a part of the church of Christ, we teach the same things as some Catholics. We teach the same things as some other Protestant bodies. We teach the same things as, as a number of even of Jews do. And so, as we think about it, you know, <coughs> there are some areas in which there is not all that much difference. But folks, we can't deceive ourselves or other people, for that matter, that there is something different about the congregations of the church, so different that we are compelled to separate, to distinguish ourselves 
from all other religious organizations. There's something that is distinct. Now, having said that, we have a very grave and relevant question. Is God pleased with us? We're meeting here in this building tonight, and we call ourselves Christians, and we call ourselves a part of the church that Christ purchased with his blood. Is God pleased with us existing separately? Our division from the rest of the religious world, is it justifiable? We have to seriously ask that question and seek to answer that question. I believe that God does not want us to fellowship everything and everybody. How do I know that? Well, I turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 at verses 17 and 18 where Paul, by inspiration, wrote these words. He says, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And just as the Christians in the first century couldn't be a part of paganism and the people who practiced those kinds of things and needed separation in regard to their doctrines and their teachings, there are things in our world today, even in Christianity, quote-unquote, in its largest sense. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, at verse number 17, Paul writes, But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There is a standard, as Paul writes it. There is a standard of teaching to which we are to become obedient. And so tonight, as we think about, we contemplate the question, why should I be a member of the Church of Christ? That's one of the things that we need always to remember. Now tonight, we must be absolutely sure that our existing as a separate entity, as a separate organization, is justifiable, uh, that it's biblical in nature. And, and as we think about that, it's not just because we've adopted and hold some practices and some doctrines that originated with us that are unknown to scriptures and therefore we separate on that basis it's not just that we love these things and and we hold them so dear to ourselves that we're unwilling to give them up for the sake of unity and that's not what we're talking about tonight if this was so then folks we're violating all of the plain scriptures that the bible has on unity if we're together tonight just because we, we want to be separate and different and we've made it that way and we do things the way we, we like and the things that we've always known, then we're wrong, period. And if that is the case, we're violating Scripture. We're, we're keeping Christ's prayer from, uh, uh, for unity from being answered because He prayed for His followers, His believers to be one. And even more than that, folks, we stand condemned before God. If the only reason we're separate is because we like things one way and other folks like things another way, we will be condemned by God. And so what's different about the church of Christ that justifies the separation that we know and have to admit exists? The difference isn't in the members. The members don't necessarily possess superior intellect. We're not more special than other folks. Members haven't received any special revelation or greater revelation from God. 
members of the church of Christ have uh, no better ability of discernment than so many others and that makes us choose the better things of life. Uh, it's not that we're, we're uh, uh, of a, a greater breed, if you will. Uh, it's not that our members have greater uh, 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 sincerity. There are a lot of sincere people in the religious bodies. The difference tonight is not that we alone believe in God and Jesus as His Son. Just about every uh, Christian, quote-unquote, again, we put that in quotation marks, just about every Christian religion believe the same thing in regard to this. We don't stand alone in prayer. We don't stand alone in giving of our means, helping the less fortunate, and so forth. We alone are not the ones who teach that Jesus was born in a stable, died on a cross, and rose from the grave. There are so many who teach the same thing. It's not that we alone believe that Jesus is one day coming again and that He will judge all men. We could probably tonight name a hundred or more teachings and practices that we have in common with all religious bodies who claim to be Christian in nature. And so tonight, what is it? What is it that justifies? Is it justified? Is God pleased with us separating ourselves from the rest of the religious world? And if He is, what is it that makes us different? Let's spend just a few minutes tonight in the time that we have talking about five or six things that, that we need to look at and take into consideration. Let me ask tonight, is, is it our attitude toward the Bible? Is that what separates us from, from everybody else in the religious world? You know, we believe that the New Testament is the final and full revelation of God for uh, mankind and for His salvation. And we believe that God has not given a later revelation of some kind, nor will He give some kind of revelation that's different from what we have in the New Testament. He has not and will not give us anything more. And folks, we believe tonight that there is no counsel, that there is no person who has a right to add to or to take away from the Word of God. I don't know if you've ever noticed it or not, but near the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, in one of the first five books of the Bible, Moses wrote these words to the children of Israel, You shall not add to the word I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, that I command you. Near the middle of the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 30 at verse 6, the wise man wrote these words and said, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And near the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, the, uh, John wrote and said, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And so at the beginning, at the midpoint, and at the end, God said, don't add to what I said. And at the beginning and at the ending, he said, don't take away from what I said. And so in, in the days of Moses, don't add to, don't take away from what God said to those people. 
And in the days of Christ, the days that, that you and I have been given the New Testament, we don't add to, nor do we take away from these things. You know, all Scripture has been given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for man, for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. We don't need anything else. We have all that we need. And Paul said in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, though we are an angel from heaven, teach any other gospel to you than what we've taught you, let him be accursed. He wasn't content with that, so he turned right around and said the same thing again. We have the complete revelation of God. And that's what we believe in, re in regard to the New Testament, to the Bible that we have. And so is this the distinctive characteristic, the distinctive doctrine in the Lord's church and the church of Christ that separates us and justifies us from being separated from every other religious body? Listen to me. No. What? No. There are others who proclaim the same, just like us. And you know what? We could agree with those folks and join with them on this matter without having to change one word of the things that we teach from the Word of God. They stand on the same ground. And so since there are others who teach the same thing, that's not sufficient grounds for us to be separate, to be distinct, to be different from all other groups. It's not just our attitude toward the Bible. What about it? What about this one then? Is it our attitude toward the Old Testament? God inspired those 39 books of the Old Testament, did He not? And they belong in the Bible, do they not? And these books in the Old Testament contain the Law and the Prophets. And these books that contain the Law and the Prophets, they were for the people who lived on the other side of the cross. And it was the Word from God that they were to believe and that they were to obey and that they couldn't add to or take away from. And we're also told in the book of Romans chapter 15 at verse number 4 that that Old Testament, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now we can't learn what man needs to do in order to be saved from the Old Testament. God's terms of pardon are not listed in the Old Testament how Christians are to worship today are not listed in the Old Testament. The religious name that God intends for mankind to wear is not listed in the Old Testament. But we do read in the New Testament about the passing of that law. In the book of Galatians chapter 3 verses 24 and 25, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Until Christ came, we had the Old Testament in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. We're no longer under the Old Testament. Colossians chapter 2 at verse 14 reveals that it was nailed to the cross when Jesus was nailed to the cross. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews said long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. Where do you read that? In the Old Testament. But in these last days has spoken to us by His Son, by Jesus, by the one who sent the 
Spirit in order to guide the apostles into all truth that they could write it down. And so tonight, as we think about it, is it our attitude toward the Old Testament that makes us different, that allows us or justifies us to be separate from every other religious body? Listen to me close. No. There are other religious bodies in our world who teach exactly the same thing. Exactly. We wouldn't have to change one iota of what we teach in order to be combined with, the, with those groups. We, we wouldn't have to change a thing. And so, not just our attitude toward the Old Testament, uh, that doesn't justify us from being separated. Well, what about this one? What about our attitude toward mechanical instruments of music in worship? Now, as you know, probably we stand against uh, mechanical instruments of music in worship. We don't have a piano, organ, guitars, all those kinds of things. And you've heard lessons in regard to that. I want us to understand tonight, it's not that we have, don't have an appreciation for that kind of music. Some of you play instruments, don't you? And there's nothing wrong with that. Some of you are in the band. Some of you just play guitars and, and enjoy that, spend time doing that. My son uh, plays uh, occasionally at different coffee shops in Tennessee, and, and he enjoys doing that when he was growing up. You've probably heard me say it before. Uh, I, I'm not sure, but maybe my hearing loss that I have came from his trumpet. I don't know. That, that may be what it is. But, but he played guitar and trumpet. It's not that we don't like instruments. Many of us like, you know, uh, uh, good instrumental music, a, a recital, a, a, you know, piano or things like that. We, we enjoy listening to some of those things. But why do we exclude it from our worship? Why don't we have a big stage up here with all of those things? Simply put, the New Testament doesn't authorize it. We don't do that for the same reason we don't do steak and sweet tea on the Lord's Supper. It's not because we don't like steak, not because we don't like sweet tea or we're on a diet. You know, we, we just don't like the sugar. Why don't we use steak and sweet tea on the Lord's Supper? Well, Christ used unleavened bread and grape juice. You see, in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 26 through 28, we know that, that uh, Jesus established the Lord's Supper. The Bible simply says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, to, uh, he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, uh, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We recognize that Jesus established the Lord's Supper at that point, but where was Jesus and the apostles and what were they doing? We know from Matthew chapter 26 at verse 18, same chapter, they had gone into the upper room and there it was that they were eating the Passover meal. Because they were eating the Passover meal, we know exactly what kind of bread Jesus took on that day and he blessed and he gave it to them. Because the only kind of bread that they could have was unleavened bread. When you go back to the book of Exodus chapter 12 at verse 18, which was written incidentally for our learning. And so we have, we have that. We also know what was in the cup. 
Because the Bible tells us what was in the cup. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29 tells us what was in the cup. That passage says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until I, that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we have unleavened bread and we have the fruit of the vine that we use on the Lord's table. Not steak and not sweet tea. Simply put, the New Testament teaches us to sing, doesn't it? Just as we're taught what to do in regard to the Lord's Supper, we're taught to sing. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to, your, uh, to the Lord with your heart. We don't play instruments there. We, we, uh, we do have an instrument. It's not a mechanical one. It's the heart. That's where we make the melody. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We could go on, Acts 16, verse 25. What did Paul and Silas do when they were in prison? They sang. We could look at Hebrews chapter 13 at verse 15 where the writer of the book of Hebrews says, Through him then let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips. And so we're authorized in the New Testament to sing. So, simply put, does this separate us from every other religious body? We're the only ones who do that. Listen to me carefully. No. No. There are others. <coughs> what about the Greek Orthodox Church that has never used instruments? And if we were standing side by side studying the Bible with folks, you know what they would do? They'd make the same arguments against it that we make. We don't differ from them. They teach the same. And so... Again, if it was just the sake of this one argument, we're not justified separating ourselves because we would agree with that group. <coughs> what about this one, our attitude towards church government? Back me up one there, Larry. I don't know why it won't back up. What about our attitude towards church government? We're, we're running slow, or uh, our time is quickly passing away. We believe in autonomous congregations. That is, Jesus is the head, and, and there's no, no other group, no uh, state group or district group or national group that has the authority over our congregations. The only thing that we have is what's established in the Word of God. We have elders... Acts chapter 14, verse 23, they appointed elders in every church. We have deacons or special servants of the church that meet God's qualifications, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And then all others, including preachers, serve under the guidance of the elders and work alongside those men who serve as deacons. But again... Even though many religious bodies, denominations in our world have rejected this pattern, do you know what? There are still others who practice it just the way that we do. And so 
Again, I ask that question. Is it this matter that, that justifies us from being separate from all the other religious bodies in our world? Listen to me carefully. No. It is not. Absolutely not. What about our, our attitude toward baptism? Most churches require at least some form of baptism so, uh, so that a person can be a part of that religious group. <clears throat> but is it because we're the only ones who affirm that <clears throat> baptism is for those who are old enough and who believe in Christ uh, that uh, they are to be baptized, uh, that their sins can be washed away? Now, now, mind you tonight, we don't believe that baptism is the most important command of God. Listen to me carefully. We don't believe that baptism is the most important command of God. But it is a command. And every single one of God's commands are important. Right? Would you agree with me? Absolutely. And so we look at Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, 38, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, 1 Peter chapter 3 at verse 21. We believe that it does stand between God and sinners because it is one of His commands. We do believe that it is for the remission of sins, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. There are many in our world who would argue well, that simply means because our sins have already been forgiven. But may I remind you of what is said in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, at verse 28. In that same passage when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and He took that cup of unleavened bread, that, or, or, or uh, uh, fruit of the vine, rather, He took that cup. Do you remember what He said? He said in that passage, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the remission of of sins. Lord, did you die because man's sin had already been forgiven, or did you die in order that man's sin would be forgiven? You see, it's the exact same wording, the exact same phrase. For whatever reason Jesus died is the same reason that Peter gave in regard to baptism. It stands between man and man's salvation. So no wonder in the book of Acts chapter 22 at verse 16, Saul was asked, Why tarriest thou? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. To the point again tonight, does this distinguish us from every other religious body in the world and justify us being separate from every other religious body in the world? Listen to me carefully. No. Why? There are other religious bodies who teach the exact same thing. And so, why are we not a part of their group since we all teach the same in these matters? Hmm. Good question. What about the attitude toward the name by which we're called? Don't we want to be called Christians 
Reject all human names. Isn't that what we stand for? Well, why is that? Because that's the name that's given in the New Testament, isn't it? Acts chapter 11, verse 26, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church, taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Acts 26, verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. You see, we disagree with those who say there's nothing in a name. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 26, the Bible says that there is salvation in no one else, speaking about Christ, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. How many of us realize that in the book of Isaiah, chapter 62, at verse number 2, incidentally again, one of those passages, one of those books in the Old Testament from which we are to learn, in that passage, in prophesying in regard to the church, the coming of the church, he says, The nation shall see your righteousness and all your kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name. And it's not just any old name. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, those early first century Christians were given the name Christian because, because they were being made fun of. Isaiah 62 verse 2 says that, they, that we would be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. We want to be called by the right name. We're called simply Christians. When people were calling themselves by different names, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, Paul rebuked them. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And here again, is this, is this the thing that separates us? Y'all know the phrase by now. Listen to me carefully. No. This is not what justifies us. Are there not other religious groups who use scriptural designations? I didn't take time to count it, but how many times is the term church of God used in scripture? What about the church or the assembly of the firstborn? And we could go on and talk about others. And so here again, this alone is not what justifies our separation. What about, what about our attitude toward the Lord's Supper? We're distinct from a lot of folks, aren't we? Every first day of the week we partake of the Lord's Supper. And yet some only observe it monthly or quarterly. We do that <coughs> based on what is said in the book of Acts chapter 20 at verse 7. In that passage on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread... Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. Why did the Christians in the first century meet? They met to participate in the Lord's Supper. But we turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And Paul is writing about the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week. Each one of you is to put something aside and store it up. 
as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. What are we to do on the first day of the week? One of the things that we're to do is to give while we're here. We, we have a collection so that there won't be a time. Somebody said, well, why can't I do that at home? You still got to collect it. And Paul said, so that there will be no collection. So every first day of the week, he made it clear, we're to give. But may I ask you again, why were they there to begin with? Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Because they came together to break bread. How often did they do that? must have been every first day of the week. Because it was on the days that they came together that they were told to take a collection as well. So even though some only observe the Lord's Supper monthly or quarterly or yearly, guess what? Is that what distinguishes us? Y'all know the phrase? No. There are others who partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week just like we do. Well, in this lesson what we've done is examine a few of the great teachings of the Bible in regard to the Lord's Supper, baptism, the name, all of those things that we've looked at in these about seven things tonight. And in looking at these seven things, we have yet to find that which distinguishes the church of Christ from every other church. One thing you do need to take note of, and that is this, we did not find a single place where the churches of Christ were not sound in their teaching. In observing the Lord's Supper and baptism and in all of the things that we've looked at, in regard even to our attitude toward the Bible and toward the Old Testament. And as we noted these characteristics of the Lord's church, we also found that one or more religious group also had the same characteristic. But now at the end of our lesson, I want to reveal the important difference between the church of Christ and every other religious group on the face of the earth. Although <coughs> all churches teach and follow some of the Bible, and some of the great teachings of the Bible, there is no other religious group that follows the New Testament on every single one of the matters that we have discussed tonight all at the same time. I think that's important, don't you? You say, well, preacher, why is that important? Well, are we content to be 10% like God's pattern? Maybe we do one out of 10. Are we content to be just 10% like God said? Oh, no, preacher, I think it needs to be a little higher than that. What about 20 or 30, or 50. Mm, if I'm only doing half of what God said, I, I, I probably, still, probably still need to make some changes. What about 90? What about 90? Are you content? You know what the Lord's church contends for? You know what our plea is? 
It's not because we want to be haughty. It's not because we want to be ugly. It's not because we just want to be different. But our plea is and always has been to be 100% in agreement with the teachings of God. To do all that He teaches us to do. So folks, if you can find one single thing that we teach or practice in our worship that wasn't taught or practiced in the early church, if you can point that out and show us in the Bible, then I think I can speak for our elders, even though they're, they're over me. If you can point that out from the Word of God, then I think we'd change it immediately. Not just because you think it, but because God said it. You see, we'd rather it cease to exist as a religious body than to do one more thing than God authorizes us to do. And by the same token, we would rather cease to exist as a religious body to stop one step short of teaching all the truth and following the original pattern that God laid out in every point. And so, when any religious group is willing to make whatever changes they need to to occupy the same ground, since there are things that they are not doing or things that they're doing in going beyond what God said... When any religious group is willing to make that change and seek to be 100% in agreement with God's Word, the New Testament, then we'll no longer stand separate from them. We'll no longer be aloof from them or exist as a separate group. We'll join hands with them and serve God right by their side. And look forward to the time that we can spend eternity with Him. Good friends, young people, all of us, we need to point out tonight that we, like God, hate religious division. And our desire should be like God's desire of having unity in Christ. But there can never be unity. We can never unite until we unite on the New Testament, the Word of God. Unity upon any other grounds that includes the doctrines of mankind. Unity in that way that, that leaves off what God has taught or adds to what God has taught is not acceptable in the sight of God. So tonight, wouldn't you want to be a part of a church that's determined to honor and follow God in all His ways? And not just in part of them. Why 
Should I be a member of the church of Christ? It's not because we're so distinct in, 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 in doctrines. Because there's somewhere, somebody out there <coughs> on just about everything that we, can, that we say, that we do, that we teach, that says it and does it just like us. But then they've left off or they've added to on many other things. Let's determine in our hearts to love unity, to desire unity, to want unity more than anything, except for wanting it more than we do in obeying the commands of God. That's why we need to be a part of a church that is seeking to teach this and to do this and to live this. Maybe tonight that you need to be a part of this, this church. You want to study more? We'd love to study with you. Maybe tonight that, that you've become a part, but you've sort of stepped out of the way and you want to come back. Christ's invitation is open to you. He wants you to come back. If you need to respond, come right now.